You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Chatsky, welcome to Her Money. If you are a frequent listener of this podcast or even someone who's just not tuning in for the very first time, you have probably heard me say, life happens. And usually when I say life happens, I'm talking about having an emergency fund, having some savings, because there are only so many things and so many expenses that you can actually control. But today, we're taking a different approach with that phrase. The folks at our sponsor, Fidelity, they've done some fascinating new research that shows just how stressful these life events can be on your happiness, your health, your overall well-being. So here in the studio to give us a full debriefing is Jeannie Thompson. She is Senior Vice President of Thought Leadership for Fidelity Investments, and she leads a team that develops data-driven insights based on quantitative research and qualitative research and all of that data. And you know, I love the data. I'm a data nerd or whatever you want to call me. All of that information goes in to develop theories and products and services that help us manage our money and live our lives a little bit better. And all of that includes the research that we're going to talk about today. So Jeannie, welcome. Thank you, Jean. Excited to be here. Oh, I'm excited to have you here. I've been asking you to come in for a while, and I'm excited <laughs> that you finally made it to New York. Tell me about this particular study. Yep. So this study, we actually surveyed 9,000 people from all incomes, all parts of the country, all ages, um, working though, obviously. And we partnered with the Stanford Center on Longevity, which really, you know, is out there to help people, you know, navigate through life. And what we really wanted to do was to understand how different life events impacted them over four domains, over their financial life, their health, their working career and then just their family and their overall life in general because we feel that these things are interconnected. So you've figured out that the average person has four different life events every single year. What what kind of life events? So we studied everything from retiring, which is obviously the first one that we would study, but everything from getting married, having a baby, going through a divorce, loss of a spouse, even things like having a reorganization at work. So it really spanned. Before we we launched the show, Jeannie and I were just talking about sending our kids off to college. Did you study that? Is that we a, did, is that yes. A stressful that. Life event? <laughs> Actually, sending them to college isn't nearly as stressful as having them return and move in with you after college. Um, having the, the, them fly back to the nest is much more stressful than them leaving the nest. My ex-husband and I took our daughter to um, back to school at Syracuse this year, and we're helping her organize her room, and we figured out she didn't have enough drawer storage. There was plenty yeah. of like shelves, but not enough drawers. So we made the pilgrimage to Target, and we bought one of those 
$99 dressers that weighs yeah. a ton <laughs> and then took it back to her room. And it took the two of us together three hours to put it together to, to put this thing together <laughs> and i think i actually think i get a lot of credit i said to my ex-husband i said you know it's a really good thing we're already divorced because <laughs> this is one of those things and he said this is the ikea test this is <laughs> actually a thing can you put furniture together with somebody That's or right. will it cause you to get divorced we did not get re-divorced we didn't even have a fight <laughs> i was pretty good at figuring out the logistics and he was actually pretty good at putting things together yeah so it worked but it took three hours that's and i think that goes on the stressful <laughs> life event yes. list all right you mentioned a lot of real life events yeah. not my target furniture life event um the dresser looked really beautiful by the way and I it actually it worked <laughs> i was so proud of the fact that it, there's a lot of satisfaction in putting together a furniture like that yeah. but let's start with some of the real events that yeah. you studied let's talk about debt i mean oh, yeah we know that debt can do a number on your finances. It can do a number on your head. You found it can do a number on your health, particularly with women. Yes. So taking on debt was actually one of the most common and the most stressful life events. Um, so obviously it impacts your daily budget, it impacts your finances, but we found that when it comes to your health, many were you know suffering from lack of sleep, gaining weight, stopping to exercise, um, and overall just generally feeling more stress as a result of that. Do you did you get into the why? Like why would debt? I get why the debt causes you to have lack of sleep, but what is it that triggers lack of exercise? Exercise. Is it just that you get in a hole and you can't dig yourself out? Yes, it is. It's that you get into a hole that you're feeling like you have to be much more committed. So we did find that most people were much more committed at work. So they may end up having to work overtime, having less time to exercise, especially for women, also raising families, working full time working extended hours and then not taking the time for themselves to exercise, you know, to eat right. It's sometimes it's much easier to grab something quick than to make sort of a healthy meal. So the impacts are really compounding. Um, and in particular for women, they found having that debt burden to be much more stressful than men. You know, I thought it was really interesting, too, that you found that about a third of women who had a big debt burden gained weight. Because when I worked on the debt diet for Oprah's show, oh yeah, we found that as people got out of debt, they lost weight. Yes. So, you know, I, I do think that there is, and it's healthy eating, but it's also being more mindful of what you're spending your money on and when you're doing things, whether they're spending or eating. Yeah, and I think the key word there is sort of mindful because even when you're trying to pay down debt, you have to be mindful of how you're spending to make sure that you have enough to meet your monthly debt payments and even maybe pay an extra. The same is with eating. And I know Oprah's talked about this many times over the years, but being mindful about what you're eating and not just sitting in front of the TV plowing through a bag of chips, which sounds like fun, but it doesn't always feel so good <laughs> after the fact. Um, and so it's really that, that sort of discipline and that mindfulness that apply to saving and investing as well as your health. I was also struck by your finding on divorce. So as you know, as everybody knows, because I, I talk about it, I'm divorced, I'm remarried, but you found that divorce is sometimes a negative stressful event, but other times not so much. Can, can That's you explain right. that? Yes. I mean, that was just wild. I would think it would always be negative. Yes. Um, and that was actually one of the big surprises that came out of the research that 
for Gen X, those that are born after 1965 through 1980, um, divorce was a significant negative event, in particular Gen X women. Um, the financial burden associated with that, along with the caregiving, across the board, they have lower life satisfaction, increased financial stress. Um, but surprisingly, for millennials and boomers, um, divorce tended to be a much more positive thing where their life satisfaction actually increased. Um, and we attributed this to, for millennials, many times they hadn't fully merged their finances, so the financial impact wasn't great. And in many cases, they hadn't had children yet. So you didn't have the custody issues, you don't have the financial issues, and they're sort of getting out before it gets serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for boomers, many of them are empty nesters. And so the kids are gone, so they don't have to deal with sort of the custody issues. And their financial picture is becoming a little bit more clear. They either have kids in college nearing the end or out of college. College seems to be a big thing where people stayed together. And once that sort of picture becomes clear, the financial picture of how I went to pay for that, there's not much left to really fight and argue about. So then again, the, the satisfaction for boomers increased greatly. Did you learn anything from the reduced stress that millennials and boomers fought that we can give to the people in the middle to help them through these stressful times? You know, the one thing across all of the life events that were negative, um, that's really the antidote or the sort of the prescription of how to help is exercise. We found that consistent exercise three or more times a week, those that continued to exercise, the impact, the negative impact was much less significant than those who stopped or weren't exercising at all. And, it, you know, even you think the doctor's always telling you to eat right and exercise and you sort of take it sometimes with a grain of salt. But in this research, we found that it absolutely it has a halo effect in every aspect of your life. When I did my big happiness study, and it's been over a decade now, that was one of the findings, too, that people who exercised more were just happier. Yeah. You know, and I, I always think of that scene in Legally Blonde where Reese Witherspoon <laughs> says, you know, happy people don't kill their husbands because exercise makes you have endorphins and endorphins make people happy and happy people don't kill their husbands. And That's right. Yeah, it's, there's something about sort of, and I think when we say exercise, sometimes people think, ah, oh, I have to go out and run a marathon or I need to like really, you know, hit it hard. Um, and that's not necessarily the case. Even just getting outside for a walk, mm-hmm. right, to start can make a huge improvement. I will tell you that every person that worked on this research project and saw that finding started to exercise consistently just because of this halo effect that it has on our life, in particular, especially for those that are caregiving. Were you an, an exerciser before? You know, I would have to say I'm, a, I'm an intermittent exerciser. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I have run half marathons and done triathlons, but, you know, at the time when this research came out, I was not exercising. It was um, January in New England, very cold, and uh, but I did start up again. So I, I go through fits and starts. I want to talk about reorganization yes. at work because that's something that a lot of people are going through. But before we do that, let's just take a second to remind everybody that her money, like this research, comes to you from Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of all of our financial lives. You know, it's interesting having you here in the studio, Jeannie. I'm wondering, is this sort of research something that you have to 
drive forward or is it kind of, I mean, you work for a company that is run by a woman. The president of Fidelity Investments is a woman. There are a lot of, you're living in a sea of estrogen. So yeah. <laughs> is, is it part of the culture? Yeah, I would say it is. I mean, there's, I like you said, work with a ton of strong and very empowered women. And I think part of our goal is to empower other women, not just in their finances, but in all aspects of their life. So part of my role, I meet with, you know, this year alone, probably 50 different employers, many of them huge companies. Um, and they're really trying to empower their women as well, not just in their financial lives, but in their careers and in their health. And so I think, you, you know, to some extent, it wasn't hard um, to convince anyone that this research needed to be done, because I think people's financial lives and their health and their careers are so intertwined today that to look at one, you're only getting a portion of the picture. So it just made sense to look at people more holistically and treat the entire individual versus just, you know, being a specialist in one component. Right. It's not just about your money. It's about your life. Exactly. All right. And everybody can visit fidelity.com slash it's time for more information like this and more conversations like this. So work. I mean, you were talking yes. about meeting with 50 employers, big employers every single year. Every year, I'm sure a handful of those go through some big reorganization. Is that worse for women than it is for men? Yes. Yeah, so interestingly enough, it's 30% of people experienced a reorg in the last year. And we found that for women and actually millennials, they feel the impacts of a reorg more significantly. So. Why? So there's two theories. One is that as we surveyed people that women may be a little bit more in touch with their feelings and connect, you know, that this is causing this than men. So maybe there's a little more honesty in how they answer. Um, I think, but the other is that women are really trying to balance so much in their lives. So they have their careers. Many times they're coming home to a family. They may have help from a husband. They may not or a spouse or partner. And so I think that there's when things change at work, you know, you kind of get into your groove and you get comfortable in your groove. And then when things unexpectedly change, um, there's a lot of other things that they may have to juggle. They may have had flex time that now maybe a new boss doesn't agree with. Mm -hmm. They may be able to have worked from home, or they may be even changing locations and have to commute a little longer than they used to. So I think there's a lot more that women have to juggle. So when things, the slightest thing upsets the apple cart, there's this domino effect that if impacts other aspects of their life, where in many cases, right or wrong, that may not be the case with men. You, you've got this interesting perspective on this. I mean, I know you've toggled in and out of work because you've got two kids of your own. They're both in high school at this point. And I've heard you speak about this concept, not of juggling and not of balancing, but of swaying. Yes. So explain. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, I, as you said, I have been in and out of the workforce when my kids were young. I stepped out for just under five years and then came back and had to rebuild my career. And, you know, I always was striving for balance. And at one point in my life, I, I realized actually when my mother was very sick and, you know, she has since passed away from cancer that I just was never achieving balance. And I developed this new philosophy of sway, which really is about embracing the ebb and flow between work and life. And sometimes you need to be 100% focused on work. And whether that's a business trip that lasts a week or it's a project that's due and you have to work a little bit longer, that's what you need to do to get things done. And then other times, you know, it's about what's going on at home. And you may have to say, look, I need to leave early. I have to take my kids to the doctor. And so it's never going to be feel balanced 
in any given day. Mm -hmm. But you really need to look back over a week, over a month, over a year to see if you've had this ebb and flow. And so you sway back and forth. I think that makes, I mean, for me, looking at my life and how my work life and personal life tend to intersect, that's a, a philosophy that makes a lot of sense. So for people who are thinking, okay, maybe I should be swaying instead of trying to juggle or balance or get it all done in a single day, don't do that. <laughs> Let's talk about how do you start doing this? Yeah, so the first thing is to ask for help. Of whom? Uh, you know, of whoever can solve the current issue. So, and sometimes it's to ask for help from, you know, your mother, your mother-in-law, the babysitter, the neighbor, right? If something's going on at, at work and you need to, you need help at home. And many times women are very comfortable asking for help at home. At work, though, I sometimes find that women feel like they need to do it all to prove themselves. But I think there's a lot of opportunity for women to, you know, call time out and say, look, I have this much on my plate. This is what I can give, you know, here are things that I will get done. Here are things that I need to pass off. And I think setting those boundaries um, and saying, I need help with X, Y, Z will really go a long way. That is really nerve wracking, right? Yes. I mean, it's hard. <laughs> it is just hard to sit down with your boss yes. and say, I need help. Was it hard for you? You know, it has been over the years, but I think if you don't ask, right, whether it's ask for help or ask for what you want at work, um, that's another sort of tip is to make an ask. And you always say this, that if you don't ask, the answer's always no. I've quoted you on that. No, it is, it is very true. If you don't ask, the answer's always no. But that doesn't take into account the fact that sometimes it's just really hard to ask. Yes. And so when I, when I have to make an ask for time at work or some sort of, you know, accommodation at work, if I don't ask, what's the downstream impact? How is that going to impact my kids, my family? And is it worth not asking? Um, and so I always try to think if you're asking for something over here, what's the trade-off? And is the trade-off worth taking that risk or not of making that ask? And so you really have to think through, at the end of the day, what is your ultimate goal and what are you trying to achieve? And that sometimes will reveal whether or not it's worth making that ask. You also talk about knowing when to say no, which again is really hard for a lot of people, including me. What's your filter? How do you decide when to say yes and when to say no? Again, it's all about the trade-offs. If I say no to this, I'm saying yes to something else. And is it worth it? The other thing I try to do is if I decide that I do need to say no, is to really think about, well, how can I help that person get what they need? So if, I, if someone is asking me to do something or they need my help, if I can't help them, I generally try to offer them someone who can. Not to necessarily to pass the buck, but really they're asking me for something. They have a need. What are other ways that need can be fixed? I don't need to be the stopgap for everything. And so many times there's someone else that can help just as much as I could. And you also have said, and I've heard you say, you just have to fret a little bit less, worry a little bit less. Yes. That's hard. It's very hard. I tend to be sometimes a worrier, but, you know, it doesn't really get you anywhere. No. Um, when you look back at all the time that you've spent worrying, uh, for me, the antidote to that is yoga. For me, it's exercise. Yeah. I mean, that's, you yeah. know, that's when I go for a run, when my mind is spinning so quickly and I just can't get out of my own way. I know that I'm no good to myself and I'm no good to anybody else. And I just need, well, sometimes I need coffee, but mostly yes. I need a run. <laughs> yeah, I think a run or even if you're in, it's midday and you're in the office, sometimes just stepping away just to clear your head and you come back 
with a new perspective. Absolutely. So what's next in terms of the research that you're doing and moving the ball forward, taking all of this and help people make their lives a little bit better? Yeah. So the next thing we're looking at is that we looked at how the life events impact total well-being. We're actually now working on trying to assess total well-being. You know, as I said, we work with so many employers and they offer tons of different benefits, everything from, you know, child care to student loan debt to elder care assistance. And many times employees aren't taking advantage of those. So we're trying to help employers understand the well-being of their workforce so that employees get the right benefits that they need when they need them. That's really how we're trying to move this forward. It's really, really interesting. And I'm very happy to have you here. Thank you. You're welcome. And when are you writing the book? I've been telling, just full disclosure, I've been telling Jeannie for about two years that Sway is a book. It's a book. Our readers are going to wait. Our listeners are going to weigh in. They're going to write us and they're going to say, yes, we want to read that book. <laughs> I have a I have a chapter drafted and, and that's as far as I've gotten. So I will, after seeing you today, it always sort of motivates me to get out the pen. So I will, I will be working on it. Jeannie Thompson, thanks so much. We'll be right back. And Kelly has joined me in the studio. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I have recovered from moving Julia in. I'm so proud of you guys and the furniture. I I know I called you in the middle and you're like, not now. (laughs) (laughs) So true. And and I threw my back out a little bit, just not putting the furniture together, but it's it was one of those dressers that are made out of particle board and particle board just for the record, weighs about 10 times as much as regular wood. Really? And so lifting the box with help out of my car and onto a hand truck to get it into the building, Mm -hmm. I wrenched something. But I went to hot yoga last Ah. night, and now I'm all... Aligned. I'm all aligned. I don't know. Spir- spiritually, <laughs> physically. I got. I love this class. It's such a motley crew of people. It's really funny. Everybody has an attitude. Like for me, at least, this is how yoga should be. The whole idea of yoga is to have your own practice, right? Like go at your own pace. And I feel like I would want to be in a class that also lets me have my own attitude with yeah. it. The uh, teacher made everybody sing happy birthday to a guy who turned 51 yesterday. Oh. Yeah. And then all through the class, she kept saying, and maybe you'll move this way, and maybe you'll move this way, unless you're 51 and you can't do it anymore. <laughs> and, I, and I kept thinking, but I'm 52, and I couldn't do it before. So <laughs> anyway, it was really funny. But let's see what we've got. We've got questions from our listeners. We do. Our first question is from Rose, which is such a pretty name. She says she's a 25-year-old fellow finance nerd who is starting to think about her future tax returns. She writes, I started a heavy Google search and realized very quickly that once me and my boyfriend decide to tie the knot, we also may be inadvertently signing up for a large tax penalty. Here's the situation. We are both 25 and have well-paying careers. Looking at the single and married tax brackets, it appears that if filing jointly, we would jump a tax bracket 25 to 28%. To make matters more complicated, I own our condo and itemize the mortgage interest, but the annual interest isn't much more than the standard joint deduction. So I'm assuming I would lose the tax benefit as well. Is married filing separately a viable option? Is there anything else we can do other than waiting to buy a more expensive home and have children with better deductions to avoid all of these tax penalties? It's a bummer. 
It is just, I mean, this the marriage penalty is just a bummer, and the answer is pretty much no. Married filing separately generally doesn't save you anything and often costs you significantly more. I would say look for other places in your life that you may be able to come up with other things. I mean, just make sure that you're keeping very good track of your charitable deductions, of your medical expenses in case they creep up in any particular year, of things that you're doing where perhaps you're volunteering and you're driving, where the mileage can be deducted. It's all nickels and dimes, and it's not going to add up to the difference that you are anticipating will come your way. I mean, the only thing I could think of, maybe you just take some of those wedding gifts and you put them in a fund and you figure, all right, this is what we're going to use to <laughs> pay our taxes in the years to come. I mean, I, I think back about what my mother said, and she wasn't talking about the marriage penalty because I don't know if the marriage penalty existed at that point. But when she and my father were thinking about having kids, they just knew if they thought about affording to have kids, they would never, ever have them. And so I kind of think this is along those lines. If you and your boyfriend are in love, if you really want to tie the knot, just get married and and you'll figure out a way to afford the taxes. I love the idea. Instead of a honey fund, the it, fund for honeymoons, having a tax fund. Having a tax fund. Having just, a tax fund. Exactly. Okay. Our next question is from Judy, who's been a fan since the Franklin Covey Jean Chatsky planner days. Oh, boy. She says. Did I pronounce that correctly? You you did. I did this uh, I did this line of planners with financial tips in them for oh, nice. Franklin Covey. If you, if you want one, I think I still have some in my basement. <laughs> she writes, here is my predicament. My credit union offers 1.99% on their savings account for the first $500. After that, it drops significantly to 0.1%. Should I keep 500 in my savings account and keep the remainder of my savings in another account at a different bank? I worry about keeping 500 in my savings account with the local credit union because it is tied to my checking account and I sometimes make impulsive purchases, but still 1.99% is hard to pass up. It is hard to pass up, but there are similar offers available that will allow you to earn that kind of a rate of interest on more money. Not unlimited amounts of money, but more money. And so what I want you to look for is a high interest rate checking account. There are a lot of these accounts that will allow you to earn that kind of interest on up to $10,000, sometimes $15,000. I've even seen it on $25,000. But there are hoops that you have to jump through. Often you have to deposit at least one check by direct deposit or pay at least one bill by direct deposit. And you have to use your ATM card about 10 different times every single month in order to keep this interest going. But if it allows you to earn that amount of interest on a bigger chunk of money, I'm all for that. The other thing I want you to look at are other savings accounts that have competitive rates of interest. They are out there. So go to bankrate.com. You'll find a list of the best savings rates in the country. You should find a list of the high interest rate checking accounts, and you can make that decision. Now, as for the impulse purchasing, that is a different issue. Um, I want you to think about two things. First, de-linking checking and savings so that 
if you are inclined to make a purchase that would cause you to overdraw, which is what I think you're getting at here, you're going to be stopped at the point of purchase. And make sure that you decline overdraft protection because that's just a recipe for paying $35 fees every couple of months for somebody who is subject to that kind of behavior. But the other thing I want you to do is try to institute a purchasing pause in your shopping. And basically this means Anytime you go to buy something that wasn't originally on your list, meaning you didn't go out to the store intending to get it, you have to stop. You have to ask yourself, what am I going to do with this if I do buy it? What am I going to do if I don't buy it? What does this do to my future financial situation? And then you have to wait 24 hours. If you're shopping online, you can wait 24 hours just by leaving that thing in your cart. It will still be there. If you want to put it on hold behind the cash register, that's fine. Most of the time, within 24 hours, you will have come to your senses and you won't buy this thing. But if you are still thinking about it and you realize, wow, this is something I actually do really need, then you can go back and pick it up. So Ju those are the rules. Judy, I've been doing this recently with all the fall trends coming out. I have so many carts, filled carts, just sitting dormant because... I, you know, within 24 hours or even I forgot about most of them, I realized I don't need that. I already have something similar or I could probably find a better deal. Yeah, I do it too. I, I just roam around. My husband watches baseball at night, like several games. Last <laughs> night he was watching one baseball game on his iPad and one baseball game on the television screen. He's John Holtgren. Yes. Yeah, so oh, he was. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so just know that's normal. I, or that's not, he's not the only one. But, you know, my entertainment, I'm watching Bachelor in Paradise and then I'm doing some online shopping, but not online buying because I just look around, put things in my cart. Mm -hmm. That satisfies the urge and I can go about my day. Okay. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you, Jean. And on to our Thrive segment today, which actually dovetails kind of nicely with what you and I were just talking about, i.e. not buying things. We found some interesting research, and this is for any parents with kids who are early teenagers. And it shows that materialism often starts to show its head around middle school. A study from the University of Missouri pointed to three parenting strategies in particular that have been found to lead to an increase in materialism. So if this is a quality that you don't want to see in your kids, you want to try to get rid of these from your parenting arsenal. The first one is rewarding kids with things. That means paying for good grades or good behavior with gifts or with presents. Second, showing affection with material items, so bringing home a gift because you weren't able to be there yourself. And third, punishment by taking something of value away, taking away the phone, taking away the video game. So after reading all of these together, it's very easy to see the correlation. This strategy is they shift the focus to the item rather than the behavior. So even with all of this, it is still important to remember that you want your kids to have money in order to learn to manage money. And that means in my book, 
giving an allowance and using it as an actual teaching tool. We've talked about that in the past. We'll talk about that in the future, but that's the way I would try to handle it. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Jeannie Thompson of Fidelity for a terrific conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We want to know what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And I wish you could see my big smile because join us next week when Hoda Kotb will be in the house. We'll talk soon. <laughs>